Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, you're in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Management Studios. They discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, honey. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three. Two, one. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the mole hole, the, the game, new and improved the mole gamekeeper hole. studio. Yeah. This is looks a lot different than it did last week. We didn't have any lights last week. It's so bright in here. It right is. Now. It Gosh. is bright. It, yeah, maybe I'm getting yeah. some vitamin D intake. I, you know, I've, I've been having to take supplements, but I think now we're all good. Well, mm. so we tried to dress up the studio a little bit and add some... Uh, some light. Yeah, I, I like what they've done here. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Finally got the turkeys dusted off and everything. So Got Bobby's Wildlife Museum. I was expecting Lanny to be wearing sunglasses in here. I've got them right here. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely lit in here. Yeah, those are those 100%. Leopold glasses are nice. I'm going to tell you what, I love these Leopold glasses. It was a little care package, I guess, that they sent to you, and I stole from you. It was yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too old to wear this kind of stuff anyway. David yeah. Mack has some and likes them a lot, yeah. too. So what's been going on this week with you guys? Well, it's in, only Wednesday. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this past weekend is what I'm referring to. Did, did anybody get out? And I did. But I actually got out in the salt water, huh? I'm not gonna lie. You know that little. We were talking about it last week. The little transition we've got going around here. You you hit the nose. You hit the nail on the head when you said when you start hunting in the afternoons and you hear the frogs start chirping. Yeah. You know, it kind of puts you in a different mode. So the deer are kind of winding down. They're definitely going in that feeding mode, kind of grouping back up. But uh, we made a run down to the salt water uh, just because it's been there for a while. So actually, McKellar uh, and his family and I ran down to Dolphin Island, caught a couple redfish. Nice. Uh, and hung out with the kids, let the kids run crazy down there. So had a little break from hunting, thinking about a little fishing on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, but I am got back. Hayden's just talking about deer hunting, of course. Yeah. Uh, so we got a, a little bit of time left. We're going to get back in the woods. There's a cold front coming in tomorrow, so I'm kind of pumped about that. Mm-hmm. Get out there and see what happens. So we got a meat hunt on the horizon. The, I love the meat annual week. meat hunt. Yep. The meat week. And I love that it now that it's into February with Alabama – that uh, that's a great time during the middle of the day to walk around the edge of a pond with a spinnerbait and catch some big fish. Some midday action. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I've been seeing some folks catching a few fish lately. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, well, so um, let me kind of, before I forget, the, the sponsor of this week's podcast is... You know all the attractants that we, uh, the biologic full draw attractants full at, draw. at Walmart, the the BCP, 
BCP. There's a mineral supplement. There's a block. And they're fantastic products. They look, we spent a lot of time engineering these products. I mean, we really did. You know, we didn't want biologic. You know, biologic is not, an, it, these aren't attractants. These are all about nutrition. herd health and nutrition. That's right. Now, do they have attractive qualities to them? Absolutely. Yeah. But they're more built on overall herd health than anything. So you'll find these formulations that not only have, you know, a variety of ingredients with them, but the, you know, the, the key proteins uh, and uh, the science behind every, every bit of it. So a lot of thought, a lot of process going into to getting these products. And we actually released one. It's been two years now? Yeah, it is. Two it years is. Now. I'm a big fan of that BCP. I'm telling you. Beans, corn, and protein. Yeah, products. there it is. And my dear love it. It's amazing. They they find it immediately. My my when we first tried it out, my buddy Hayes put some out, and you know, he hunted it the next day, and had four bucks on it the next morning. That's and he, he put it out the night before. And I've had a lot of you know I'm always on the phone with customers, and uh, you wouldn't believe all the praise. Sure, it's we had a guy from Mobile drive all the way up here because he couldn't find any in his local Walmart all mm. the way here to get yeah. some. So it's so, amazing. So you really? can find it at Walmart, guys. It's there's a twenty pound bag of BCP. Now, yeah, it's forty pound Four, bags 40 of BCP. Pounds. They're small. Uh, ground down. It's a more of a, a ground down uh, attraction. Now, check with your local game laws about what you can do with this. Sure, stuff. absolutely. But again, it's it's engineered for for herd health. The uh, maximum minerals is another one. Uh, and then look, the block that dead gum full draw block is unbelievable. Right, my yeah. dear love that block. They really do. They, it's yeah. all of them have roasted soybeans in it, which is highly attractive to whitetails. Those roasted soybeans, what they can average, what almost 40 percent yeah, protein. And I think the more they've roasted, makes them have yeah, more. I, I vaguely remember. Is it more palatable or more protein? I think both. Oh, really? So Blake. Davis yeah. is the guy that kind of spearheads this project. He's he's kind of a mad scientist when it comes to putting this stuff together, and it's I've just been super impressed with it. Well, they their experience comes from you know they create feeds for all kind of livestock. Sure. So, um, but they're really uh, interested in, in wildlife, obviously. So you get the roasted corn and the soybeans are obviously for attraction and nutrition. But then that pellet in there is not only moisture resistant, but it's got all the vitamins and different things that that they need. So. And, uh, you know, it, they are just unbelievably attractive and nutritious. And yeah. that's the most important thing. So, guys, you can find this at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And, sure uh, and it's a great product. Did you have something to do? Oh, I was just going to comment that I saw you sneaking out with a full draw oh, yeah. block the other afternoon. I've never seen it. That's the biggest feeder I've ever seen in my life, Bobby. Well, I, I got a, fee, a protein feeder just to feed the BCP. Just out feed of. the BCP. Yeah, it's a Texas Hunter's feeder. It's And it's probably going to break me trying to fill it up with Yeah, food. yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> It'll hold 1,200 pounds. <laughs> but it's a nice feeder. I'm excited about it. it is Evidently, fun. it garnered a lot of attention yesterday on the back of my trailer because I got a lot of text. Everybody in town mm-hmm. was texting me, too. What's Bobby got going on out there? Yeah, it almost looked like a big explosive device or something. <laughs> so is your whole goal, I mean, we're winding down the season, supplemental feeding? Is that what you're trying to do just it, to get them where they need to be? To it is. I, I wanted to offer them an all-you-could-eat. Buffet and, and just see if we can't raise the nutritional plane, or and, and try to help them out. I know that's a hard thing to do. I don't this, have I don't have a very big place at the. This is going to the ponder. Well, I'm gonna tell you what that feeder ought to <laughs> 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 cover it. <laughs> if it's not a very big place, it's a big feeder. It's a big feeder. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> All right. So, what about blood on the biologic? Has anybody? Uh, what have y'all? I tell you what, I noticed this week that really jumped out at me was uh, the Lindsay shared a photo of a giant deadhead that was found in 
Ohio that just almost looked unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was almost hard to believe. But I mean, they verified it was a free range whitetail, massive. What was he like? A typical eight point, but just crazy huge. And somebody had the past two seasons sheds from him, and you, yeah, and so somebody's heart broken. Oh gosh! Yeah. But that was a giant. If you, I would encourage you to go to Lindsay's page and look at that. It was incredible. Yeah. And then um, Brittany Mackey, she killed a really big six point. I think about ten days ago. Man, okay. I love a big six point. Yeah, yeah I really yeah. do. Uh, my little buddy Watson McMillan killed his first buck um, down near where Cuz grew up hunting, down around Natchez and Meadville near the home of Chitta. Uh, it was about a hundred and thirty inch eight point for first, his first, first buck. buck. Yeah, a one thirty eight in Mississippi. Yeah, wow, that's big. It was huge. So he's then, real excited about it. I bet he is. Well, the ducks don't seem to be around here like that. Man, you know, it seems like every year we're like the season never was with ducks. Oh, but you know, the, uh, there was a big deer killed in West Point, too. You showed me a picture of it, actually. Yes. And that was, you know, shot week every year, it seems like, in this area. Somebody catches an old big deer post-rut loafing, uh, and he did. That was a giant deer. It's yeah, 25 inches wide. Is yeah. what Main beans were 24 and 26. Yeah. That's a giant deer. For it just kind of—it was one of those deals where it just looks like it, it keeps looks like going out and doesn't yeah. come back. It looked like, like a Texas deer. Yeah, yeah it was giant. Like. I know. I would have liked to have seen him. Oh, I know you were texting me. Who is this? Where is this? How did he get this? <laughs> <laughs> now, where is this? <laughs> yeah, and then your directions were well, on I was total totally, opposite. I was not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to get you to drop in. I corrected pen, myself, <laughs> and then it made sense once yeah. you did. Yeah, so. All right. Well, I, I mean, that's it's just it's winding down, so we're not hearing as much. Uh, but there's a big front going on up in the Midwest, so it might put some more ducks down for the last few days. I hope so. It's supposed nice. to get cold here tomorrow. It will be nice, that's for sure. Well, good. Well, today's show, I'm real excited about it. We've got a great guest. It's uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain making his second appearance. Yes. Right. And, and we're going to talk about turkeys with him, and which is you know, last time we talked about. Uh, Wolves, which is, you know, he knows a lot about wolves. I mean, yeah. he may be the expert, the yeah. southern expert. I mean, he's supposedly but, like the turkey doc guru, you know, the guru, but he's uh, fascinated with all walks of wildlife. Yeah. And I saw him quoted in an Audubon article I was reading on conservation earlier this week. So. Sorry, you were reading. Yeah, it's pretty rare, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we go too far, let's, uh, speaking of reading, let's look over here at Mac and see if he can uh, give us one commercial. Uh, and we'll we'll have. We'll, Is this we'll get the same commercial out. for next last week, or did you write another? No, I didn't have time to write a new commercial. Oh, come on, so, well, it's, it takes a lot of time to do these things. <laughs> so, Mike, if you wouldn't mind, if you would uh, hit us with one, please. Spring's right around the corner, so we all know that, that means for the guys up north, they're going to be looking to plant some clover in the ground. Mm. And everybody around here is big clover fans. I mean, just the year-round food sources, I mean, you can't beat it. I mean, and especially being able to plant the, uh, the spring for the guys up north. Uh, and every gamekeeper loves clover. I mean, there's no doubt it's about it. It's an no-brainer. If there's one thing you can plant, it's got to be clover. Mm-hmm. I agree, and, and that's where I'm at. And, and for us, uh, cl- our Clover Plus is red and white clovers uh, with chicory added, and it uh, usually it lasts from six to eight years as long as you take care of your field. Uh, six our, to eight years. That's a long time. Absolutely. And then uh, our non-typical clover is one of my favorites, too. It's our large white uh, ladino clover. I mean, it's got a ton of forage value. It, it kind of late to bloom, so it focuses on its forage uh, potential on that. 
And then, uh, which is a crucial time, you know, for antler genesis when the deer are growing their horns. I mean, just having that longer forage uh, period, I mean, it's huge for them during that time. But uh, check them out. I mean. So think about this. Let's just say well, you got a plot to last five years. Not the, I mean, we do have it. We hear it. Some mates, not uncommon, but oh, five yeah. years. You, so a bag is roughly about $50 for an acre. You divide that by five years. That's extremely and economical. You, and then you think about spring, summer, fall, and winter forage being available for deer. The seed is actually the least expensive part of It always is in most of, of those equations. equations. That's yeah. exactly it's right. It's what a value it is. Yeah. And these are very – this is not run-of-the-mill clover. You know, we need no. to – these are highly engineered, highly sought-after um, specific forages that we've gotten from New Zealand. And this – is the non-typical, did it come from New Zealand too? No, the non-typical uh, is a white Ladino. It's U.S. bred, and we sell out every year too. So. Yeah, it's great in the south. It's one of the best-performing clover crops we've planted in the south. The Clover Plus is New Zealand red mm-hmm. and white clovers, and the non-typical is a U.S. bred clover. Yeah, it's so what, exclusive to us. Yes, that's right. So what are we talking about on 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 protein on, on those clovers? Uh, high 20s. High 20s. Yeah, pretty consistently. If you fertilize it well, get a good mm. fertilization regime. And going. if you think about all the insects that like hanging out around clover, uh, that's a lot of protein for your, for your, your upland birds. birds right. Especially mm-hmm. that. It is the one thing that, that has so many benefits for just wildlife in general. You know, Not only from pollination, I'm assuming bugs. And, and it's a soil builder too. Yep. So, it's a it's a legume. Is that correct? Yeah, it fixes nitrogen. So free, free fertilizer. Free fertilizer, and some guys are even. I'm going off on clover a little bit here. Sorry there, but some guys, I think in the Midwest, and maybe I'm wrong, they're planting clover and then drilling annuals in those clovers. Yeah, you can do that. Hey, pretty versatile. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Lanny, you know when we were younger, or at least when I was. It didn't occur to me that you could go to school and learn and and study wildlife. To this, like Dr. Chamberlain is a he specializes in wild turkeys, and there's a guy we met a guy yesterday who specializes in waterfowl. Mm-hmm. And Bronson is just a, a, a know, it, know it all on whitetail. Oh, yeah, that's right. So if you're a you know 14 or 15 year old kid listening to this, there's all kind of futures. There is in if wildlife. you love wildlife. Yeah, we're lucky we got you know Mississippi State right here, so. I went to wildlife biology school actually, and graduated in marketing. Uh, but uh, it's 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 really cool to make a living uh, studying or working on something that you love, so, and we all do that here. Yeah, and Mississippi do. State's got this deer lab. We know what great guys they are over yeah. there. But they're Georgia and Auburn and Clint- there's, uh, there's tons cool, of them. It, there really is. I think Tennessee does it. As yeah, well. I think mm-hmm. that'd probably be your. Four. And then uh, look, Texas A and M. And yeah. they've got it. All those land grant institutes are really important for wildlife. So, when you were 15 years old, what did you think you would be doing now that you're you well, know, in your 40s? You know, was, you when doing? you were young, I wasn't born yet. But after I was, got <laughs> <laughs> uh, it. Uh, but no, um, believe it or not, I have a, a funny story about that. When I was in, uh, I think, seventh grade, eighth grade, Everybody had to get in front of the class. You, they told you to go home and think about, you know, what you loved and what you wanted to do and come back to class and report on what you wanted to be when you grew up. And, of course, you know how my mind works. I, I wasn't thinking like everybody else was. Mm. So I think I was the first to go into class. 
And I got up there, and they said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a mountain man, and I want to come to town once a month. <laughs> and everybody in the class laughed at me. Uh, yeah. But, so, well, I can, I can see you saying that. I think, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I always knew I wanted to do something outside. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't, I, you know, I'm hard to contain anyway, so. So this last year of pandemic has been like a dream for you. It is an absolute. My mama said that. (laughs) She said, you've been waiting on this your whole life, haven't you? You know, look, I'm not trying to make light of the situation at all. Um, No. But, it. it, I mean, it will put some perspective on, you know, what's important out there and, you know, where you want to spend your time. So So Dudley, what do you think you'd be doing by now? Well, you know, we had a family business, so I thought I was going to fall into that. So not a very fun story, but uh, my dad passed away when I was young, and uh, we sold the family business, but we had some land that had uh, trees on it, and I took that over when dad left, and uh, that's kind of where I started getting interested in all of this tree stuff and mm-hmm. growing things. So Yeah, that makes and sense. And I, I distinctly remember you talking about um, – Picking up your first copy of QDMA, yeah, and how it changed the way I thought about you all thought that. about all this. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was uh, actually one of my dad's best friends mm-hmm. gave me a membership to the Duck Camp. Yeah, that right after my dad died. Yeah, and I started going out there. They all became my dads. But right, one of them had joined QDMA, and uh, there was the you know the magazines on all the tables at, at the Duck Camp. Wow. And I just, I found, I read the first one and then just started going through all the rest of them. That's pretty cool. So, Bobby, what about you? How did you transition from Playboy Extraordinaire (laughs) to to wildlife aficionado? And I kind of thought at this point in my life, I would probably have three female detectives that worked for me. Yeah, Charlie's Angels kind of. Exactly. You were a dreamer. Yeah, I'd be running a detective agency by now. Or, or but my backup plan was I'd have a van driving around the country solving crimes. Uh, kind of Scooby Doo. Scooby Doo ish. You yeah. and Shaggy. You and Copper hitting the roads. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, let's hear your story, though. I mean, how you ended up here is, is really interesting to me. It, well, it isn't. Uh, it, it's a very, uh, you know, a, a story from the heart, but I had uh, had a little video business made outdoor videos. Bobby Cole how, Outdoors. How-to instructional videos. Bow hunting. And they're and basic, hilarious. And, Perfected and, archery. And, Multiple titles. And, uh, and I met Toxie early on, and Mossy Oak sponsored my little, little tapes. And that was back when there were video stores, and you could, we would sell videos to people would go rent them. What was that? What is a video? A VHS tape? VHS. Ah. And th- there was a Ray's Rental movie around here yeah. that, uh, sold, uh, that rented a bunch. Anyway, long story short, uh, you know, I got married and had a baby on the way shortly thereafter, and uh, I realized, I, you know, I need a real job. I can't deer hunt for a living. <laughs> I've got a baby now. Yeah, and so, uh, so I, I, the true story, um, I was, was in a little church there in Wetumpka, Alabama, and was like, a hard, it was on my mind, what am I going to do? And I went down front when they were doing the little invitation yeah. thing and just told the preacher man I just need to make a big decision and need yeah. to, I need to change a little career path and told him and then slipped back and he prayed for me and slipped back down sat down and then the next day, day. this is amazing the very next day Bob Dixon called me uh, and I was in in my truck I was selling construction selling rebar for him yeah, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Bob Dixon called me and said hey we were wondering if you might like to come over here and come to work so 
It just, I mean, that's how it happened. Wow. I, I fully believe we were all destined to be here, and oh, there's yeah. a little bit of divine touch with every one of us how we ended up yeah. here. Yeah, I was, I was in forestry school, mm-hmm. and uh, in uh, you know the class where you identify trees. Dendro. And somebody came up to me, uh, Blake, and said, uh, man, you know so much about identifying trees, you ought to see what we're doing. Yeah. I said, okay. And I went with him, and he showed me, uh, the the beginnings of the nursery of native nursery, and wow. I've been I've been working there ever since. Ever since, so. and I just moved in and refused to leave when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they're all good stories, and I firmly believe like it, I was meant to be here, and you can't run me off. I know I'm meant and, to be here, and uh, this mm-hmm. is a this is a very special place. And so, well, looking at my phone, it. it uh, Mike just texted, Zoom update almost done. Hey, that's cool. Hey, you talked about that land-grant institute. Even as a child, my dad, they had a – Mississippi State had a public school on Whitetails. So you could sign up and come down here for a long weekend and take a course uh, put on by Mississippi State as a hunter to educate yourself more about Whitetail and Whitetail conservation. So it's almost like it's – I don't – ever remember not being infatuated with learning more and more about wildlife and nature. Mm-hmm. Kind of crazy. You know, going back in time, um, and you were part of, a little bit of part of this, Dudley maybe a little bit, but it, it, access to information it wasn't like it is no, today. Because I can clearly remember the first time I saw a, a buck rubbing a tree or making a scrape, mm-hmm. and it was just so impressive to me. Because you'd only seen still imagery in an Outdoor Life magazine right. prior to that. But then when the video world came along, people were videoing this, and you could rent a video. And then now social media has has taken it even further. Yeah. So a young kid like Hayden or little Dudley, they've, they can go on and see a, a buck making a rub or, or, or making yeah. a scrape. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they visually can see that before they ever actually see it yeah i firmly believe a lot of the uh, a lot of i mean you got taught by somebody all of us did got mentored by somebody that's our age because those the access to that information wasn't there when we were really young but um it's exciting to see you know what those platforms are doing to help you know people not only learn more about what they love but to get engaged in it so Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what gamekeepers is all about i mean that's why we're here is to as toxie says shine that beam of light um, to help everybody, you know, live a, a better life. So, all right, Lanny. So uh, we've got, you know, one of our favorite guests. I think the we all, we all have en- enjoy <laughs> yeah, listening, right. watching his posts on Tuesdays, Turkey Tuesdays, and we've listened to him on a couple of other podcasts. He's fascinating because turkeys are probably one of the things that we're most interested we in. We like those yeah. turkeys. So we've got Dr. Mike Chamberlain, and today what I hope we'll end up being able to talk about is how difficult it is to get a, a, a clutch of eggs laid and then hatched and raised up and just what all it takes to get a, a, a gobbler to adulthood. So, I'm excited. So on, uh, so we should have on the phone, we should have Dr. Mike Chamberlain here somewhere. I'm here. I'm here. It's good to talk with you, Bobby. Oh, good, good. Well, we're Making good. his second appearance yeah, yeah. on the Gamekeeper Podcast. We're, you know, and I might need, I want to point out, uh, Dr. Chamberlain, I, I'm going to call you Mike, if, if, if and, uh, just for we can simplify, but we do want to let the audience know that you are the turkey doctor. The turkey doctor. But um, I, I want to point out that uh, Bronson's, Bronson Strickland's podcast with us, um, 
has about 50 more downloads than your last one. And and he wanted me to point that out. Hey, oh, Bryson you know. getting brutal in yeah, me. Yeah. So what, is there some kind of There's some kind of competitive two, nature. Two this is good. We need to know about it. <laughs> Our good friend, he's a, he's a good guy. I can I can see him. He likes to poke and prod, so I can see him saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see if we can't. Uh, we'll find something to drum up on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Well, so we're really uh, we appreciate you being here. And sorry it was so much trouble to get hooked up, but uh, you know, uh, it's my understanding that, uh, that that this is dead center of your wheelhouse. Something you enjoy talking about all the time, and that's uh, about the difficulties a turkey has and just going through his daily life. And uh, so we've got some questions, but if you could kind of speak to that and get this little program started, uh, uh, we sh- that's where we want to go. Yeah, sure. Sure. It's uh, it's tough being a turkey. It's tough making it to adulthood. If you look across the South at our study sites, which are basically from uh, South, South Carolina, Carolina, South Carolina, over to East Texas. Uh, our nest success, meaning the percent of nests that actually hatch each year, is about twenty to twenty-two percent. So, about eighty percent of all nests fail. And and of the birds that do hatch, about two-thirds of those broods fail. So, if you look at the numbers there, you got. 20% nest success and about 35% of all the broods that hatch live for a month. The average brood size after a month is about three to four birds, meaning about half or more of the clutch dies within the first month. So when you start factoring those numbers together, it's, it's a bit startling actually, but about 7% of all nests produce at least one pulse that lives a month. Hmm. Uh, and then you, you find and a big unknown in the turkey world is we don't really know what happens to these birds from the time they're a month old until they're right now, about right now, when they're in winter flocks. We don't, we don't really have a good grasp of that because it's hard to mark a pulse with a radio that you can use to track the fall as it's growing and becoming a juvenile bird, and it, it's very difficult to get at that question. So that's a big unknown. Um, then we catch them in the winter, and we realize that very few are juveniles; that most of them are adults, which makes sense mm-hmm. since they're so tough being a, a young bird. And then we lose. You know, jakes are not foolproof, so you've got juvenile birds that that die, right? They're jakes that are harvested or a few that are killed by predators in the spring. And then they roll around to their second summer, which at that point, that's when they actually become relevant. If you, if you really think about it there, that's when they become breeding adults. Mm-hmm. When they're the odds of you looking down a gun barrel at a tom is, is quite steep. I mean, if you if you kind of look at the numbers, it's really it's really remarkable, and I I've posted about that on social media several times because I really think 
sometimes we can lose sight of how truly special it is to get a bird to be two years old, much less four or five years old, when everyone of us that are talking here is out there, you know, gunning for those birds, and there's predators out there that want to eat them, and it it's really pretty remarkable in my opinion. Well, it, it, it is, and listening to that and thinking it, it through, it just it makes you think about what can I do to help? Yeah, and, 100%. And, and, you know, if it's predator management or predator control. or So are, are there things that guys as gamekeepers and people that are interested in having more turkeys on their property, are there things that stand out to you that we could be doing that would help our success any? Yeah, I mean – Absolutely. It really boils down to scale. That That's really the issue with, with turkeys or, or many other like turkeys that are that use large home ranges. Um, so when you when you kind of step back and think about turkeys, you need to first recognize that they use thousands of acres here, not hundreds. Their winter home range in the south can be four, five, six, seven thousand acres a month and these birds will cover some ground in the spring they don't use nearly as much for the obvious reason that they're breeding and then they're kind of in their reproductive areas but yeah so you start thinking about private landowners like what can i do well we know what turkey habitat is we we know what it looks like we know what winter habitat looks like that's acorns bottom line that's mass producing trees waste grain Things, if you're in cultural areas, uh, forage plots, things that produce succulent green vegetation, like clovers in particular in the winter are valuable. And we know what reproductive habitat looks like. We know what nesting cover is. We know what brooding cover looks like or what it should look like. So if a landowner's interested in the habitat angle, there's solid science out there telling us what, what it looks like. Structurally, what does it need to look like? And then I tell people, if, if you don't have enough acreage to manage for the entire annual cycle, which you would need thousands of acres, then talk to your neighbors and figure out what their objectives are and whether they're amenable to cooperating uh, to manage it broader, because that's what it's going to take to move them. It's going to take people like us or people that are like us but don't have access to any land. And all they can do is talk to people, their friends or their, you know, their, their family members that do have property and try to convince them to do things that will help move the needle. Um, you, you mentioned predators. At the predator angle, that's one of the most contentious and, and controversial topics that comes up. Right. Trapping predators can be effective. The problem with with predation, when you talk about a turkey, is so many things kill turkeys and so many kill nest. Um, so when you start thinking about what can I do to, to either manage predation, that is a really tall order because you're talking about managing species that can be legally harvested you have some species that cannot, that routinely kill adults and young. So 
the predation, the predator control angle um, is, is more tenuous than the habitat angle. If we do a really um, at fulfilling their habitat needs, predation is less of an issue. I'm not saying it's not an issue. I'm saying it, it becomes less of an issue. I think we talked about this last time I was on with you guys, but in many ways, we've created landscape much better predator habitat than they are turkey habitat. And if we were to alter some of that, the, the predation issue would, would start to resolve itself, at least partially. Now, the problem is, and this stop me if, if you need to, but the problem with predation, predator communities are diverse now, and there's market for fur, there's there's no incentive to get people to trap mm-hmm. outside of the fact that they want to do it to help the resource. And to be a predator management research has shown this. Predator management has to be every year and it has to be intensive. And if you are managing a small tract of land and you're doing a really good job, you're a, you're influenced as much by your neighbors as so if your neighbors are not doing the same management, all you're doing from a predator standpoint is creating a sink. And as soon as you take your finger off the throttle, you, you get right coming right back. That's right. Particularly for species like coyotes and raccoons that are prolific, that eat a lot of different prey items and have a high reproductive capacity, you, all you're doing is creating a void um, that's filled pretty quick. I'm not discouraging no. doing it. I'm mm. saying that it's a that's a tenuous all task to to make an impact at a broad scale. And you know, this comes up a lot. I, it's really interesting. I, I hear a lot of people talk about predators. What can we do to incentivize people to to trap predators? And I, you, you guys may hear about this a lot like bounty system things that would incentivize people to go out and and trap predators uh again recognize that we can't trap all the predators that eat turkeys but when you start talking about bounties and things like that you i encourage people to step back a second and think about what the general public how they perceive bounty systems um Research has shown that most people don't support bounties because you're basically uh, using the mindset you're going to remove one animal to benefit another one so that more of that animal can be. And that that gets to be tricky in the public eye. Sure. Not in among, you no, know, our own community, yeah, sure. but, but in the public eye, that gets tricky. I mean, trapping in general is tricky in the public eye. Yeah. You know, it mm-hmm. is. It, it's been a, it's a controversial issue. You know, although okay. we know it's one of the best wildlife management tools we can use, it's it's still, it's still a controversial. So, so Mike, um, as we, you know, we're we're right here in 2021, and there's, you know, the the world's the population's growing. There's habitat being lost every day. Things are changing, and as we. Or could we be have already had the heyday of the wild turkey? Could it be behind us? And as 
we look into the into the future. I mean, is is it going to be one of those stories that we talk about? Boy, I can remember when we don't want the quail thing to happen. Yeah, uh, that's all I know. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll be careful how I answer this question yeah. because I get a, I get accused of being a doom and gloom guy, but um, I, I say I sure hope not. Mm-hmm. I sure hope that that we can reverse some of the challenges that we're facing right now. It's going to be tough because our landscape just doesn't look the same to a turkey as it did 30 years ago. It's just, that's just reality. Right. I mean, and, and we're not going to change parts of the, the environment for this bird in a way that we would like. I mean, we have urbanization issues, right? Use uh, the need to feed our own people. I mean, there, there are all these very complicated topics that, factor into what we can do for this bird I, I do think on a, on an optimistic side I think that more attention being paid to this bird and to the challenges facing the bird now than there have in many years and I think a lot of people recognize that we have some work to do if we want to enjoy this bird in a way that, that is sustainable so 20 years from now, to your point, Bobby, do we want to step back and look at ourselves and go, damn, I wish we had done something, or do yeah. we want to to say, you know what, we did this again. We restored this bird once, and now we face these challenges, and we we improved the situation as best we could, and, and now my kids, your kids, everyone's grandkids are going to be able to you know, continue enjoying this bird. Mm-hmm. I'm a about that mm. I'm not as optimistic about um, some of the, the challenges that we just can't as managers and hunters we we just really can't we can't tackle it at the scales we need to such as some of these issues we're, we're talking about that's going to take some creative thinking and and we're going to have to make people appreciate the relevance of this bird and understand that the habitats they use and the landscapes that they flourish on also support clean water. Mm-hmm. They support sustainable timber harvest. They support uh, sustainable agricultural systems. That's what we're going to, in my opinion, that's what we're going to have to do if we're going to keep the ship right. Uh, as you, you guys know, most people don't turkey hunt, and most people, a lot of people, uh, are interested in turkeys, but they're not interested in consumptive use of turkeys. So I think if we can, if we can kind of move that needle a little bit, make people understand that the things that the gamekeepers, for instance, wants to do to the environment to maintain sustainable wildlife benefit society at large, then then we stand a much better shot. Dudley, did you have a question? Yeah, well, I mean, I've got several, but one of the main ones that came to mind while you were talking about, like, fragmentation. You know, my my non-scientific thing is, uh, you know, I've been turkey hunting since the 80s and uh, on the same piece of land. And when I was a kid, I only remember one person in the whole area that also turkey hunted. Mm-hmm. He, he happened to be the game warden. Um, and I've got a cool story we for another podcast. But nowadays, uh, you know, I can put my Spartan camera up on a uh, 
private road that runs through my land, and I may get 20 different trucks driving by morning during turkey season. And, uh, you know, trucks parked all up and down the road. And it's, just, it's you know, we want more hunters, but uh, are, are we creating our own problem? Uh, Is there a question in there somewhere? <laughs> I think he knows what I'm talking about. Uh, so, anyway... Uh, so you're I'm, saying, is it related to overhunting? Overhunting, uh, yeah, I know you mentioned fragmentation. You know, all these 300 and 400-acre tracks, you know, a lot of them are 40s and 80s and 130s. And well, there, and what he was even be, saying, too, you know, I mean, a 300-acre track is not even big right. enough. It's yeah, thousands of acres. I but, didn't realize that. I didn't either. They did, they but did instead of having a father and son or a, a father and daughter hunting on uh, 600 acres, you may have seven or eight people hunting on 80 acres now. Well, I've uh, definitely noticed that where I am on public land, there are a lot more hunters. Um, and then it's it's also getting easier to, you know, David. Uh, technology and all that. So anyway, that really wasn't a question, but I think you, I think you get it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it's clearly documented that participation in turkey hunting has skyrocketed, you know, in the past 20 years. And, and, to some degree, you know, the tools and technology that we have available to us now, I think, facilitate some of that. The, the social media, the instant kind of communication, the mapping system, the mm-hmm. thing that will cause us to be uh, more efficient with our time. Um, I think those those things factor in. The, the tricky thing is, as you mentioned, Dudley, is, you know, we want hunters. We need hunters. Sure, absolutely. It's hunters. We you know, we we can't really we can't really look at each other and go, well, man, there's a lot of us out here. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a good thing mm-hmm. because life still drive revenue, and revenue drives management, and and so it's kind of a double edged sword. You know, exactly. that if you if you had a lot of participation and you had more than enough resource to go around then there's no problem um if, if turkeys were a a put and take resource trout in a stream then you could just go stock a bunch of them and, and catch them or harvest them and be done with it but that's obviously not the way it works with turkeys so so yeah we are encountering uh, some issues and i i'm going to call them issues but i, I almost see a lot of opportunity here to, to educate and to discuss amongst ourselves, okay, well, th- let's just say, I, I don't know that these numbers are accurate. I'm just using them for, for illustration. So let's just say there, on in this state, there are 50% more turkey hunters today than there were a decade ago. If that's the case, then we have more people that are interested in this bird we have more resources being generated to help manage this bird. We have more interest in this bird. Those are all positives. What we don't have is more turkeys. Mm-hmm. Could we use the fact that we don't have more turkeys, but we have more people that are interested in turkeys, just to take a step back, use some big picture thinking and say, you know, well, here's an opportunity. We have a resource that's in limited supply. There, I think there used to be this mindset 
decades ago that there were just more turkeys than you could kill. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't kill them though. And clearly, we know that's not true. Um, but could we use the opportunity to step back as, amongst ourselves and say, you know what? There's a lot of people that are interested in this bird, and if there are a lot of people interested in this bird, then there's a lot of people that may be willing to give a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give a little. And if they are, then we need to capitalize on it and, and use it and use that momentum. I, I see that momentum now. I, I see people having I the conversation. So if, if I'm hearing you right, and, and I know you have to be careful, and you are very careful, and you're very eloquent in your words, but it, it might be an opportunity for people to self-police their own clubs or, or a group of hunters. Mm-hmm. And, and just because the limit might be five in Alabama doesn't mean you have to kill five turkeys. So it may be that you realize that, that three is plenty. Right. It, 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 is that kind of what you're talking about, Doc? Um. Yes and no. The the no part of it is I would just say we you know we can if we can hunters judge each other um, if people are following the game laws that are set within their state then I'm not going to criticize a, a person and I don't think any of us should as hunters. The yes part of that that question would be. I think in some situations we need to be more reflective and, and introspective, meaning we need to look more at ourselves and think, okay, I'm not seeing the birds I saw 10 years ago. We're not killing the birds we used to kill. What could we do to help remedy that situation? And if one of the remedies is, you know what, we're going to shoot fewer birds than we used to on this, let's say our lease or our land or whatever it is so that we can carry more birds over into the next year. Then I don't, I mean, that's a completely reasonable decision to make, but I can't make that for someone else. But, but I will tell you, I know a lot of people who are doing that, sure. who are starting to, to say, you know what, we can't kill 10 times off this farm like we could in 1995 or 2000. We're going to kill six or whatever, whatever the numbers are. I see that quite a bit. I have a lot of conversations with people about that. I'm contacted a lot about that. Usually ask, well, how many birds should I kill? Yeah. You know, how many? How many? And there's really not an answer. You mm-hmm. know, there's not a block. It's, it's not a it's not a uniform prescription. It's you know it's based on a lot of factors that we some of which we've talked about. But, but yeah, I think we're I think we're in the days where we're going to have to be a little more we're going to have to look at ourselves a little more strict and say you know what what can we do what's within our control here and and harvest is one of those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know the turkey hunters that I know. I mean, the serious turkey hunters that I know, I think all would be willing to to do what he's saying and and look at ourselves and look at our property and say, "Hey, we need to we need to we need to just kill four down right. here on the." And we've actually done that for years. You've been property. doing to me to that 
for years. <laughs> yeah. I've limited Lanny on, yeah. on his turkey. How I many he could kill? He always limits me. I don't know what the deal is. I mean, doesn't necessarily limit himself. <laughs> but you know, on the flip side of that, I, and I bet all of us know somebody that we all think is probably killing more than they should. Well, and, I think that goes back to what he's saying about the state game laws too, because even when he's talking about micromanagement versus macro management, you know, it's going to have to be on a wide scale for it to really have an effect. You know, it's it's great for us to think that everybody will do the right thing, right? But you know, the law is the law. You know, and you know, I remember the days that I was trying to kill three in Mississippi and five in Alabama. You know, do I want to do that anymore? No. You know, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I know, think. Go ahead. No. Well, what you're saying, it, and for the last few years, uh, Mike, we, we've had Lanny and I've had a property together for a, a long, long, time. long time, and we, I bet it's been ten years ago, the birds were declining, and we said, hey, let's Rapidly. just let's just limit this to two birds. And, yeah. And and we did that, and the birds kind of bounced back, and we've Absolutely. we've stayed with it, but I've kind of come to realize that. You know, two birds is I've, – I've had a good season. Oh, absolutely I, a good I've season. Two, I, two I, if I – you know, now, of course, with kids hunting too, you know, even just one. You know, to have that experience, we're very, very fortunate here that we're, all of us here at these tables talking about that we've been able to experience that stuff. And, of course, you want to experience it again and again. But, yeah, I mean, sitting down on one goblin turkey and having one good hunt a year is, is – should be enough. Although it's not for me. <laughs> I'm usually fine with one or two. Yeah. I, I honestly can't remember the last time I killed a limit. Yeah. Um, I'm very happy for my friends that do. Right. Um, I also am not the world's greatest turkey hunter either. But, uh, <laughs> you know. I think it's interesting, and I think, Dr. Chamberlain, y'all were, I think I picked up on this last year, but there's also, wasn't there some, some talk going on about not shooting the strutter? And how shoot, us as hunters always want the strutter. Shoot the strutter, the dominant turkey, the dominant one in the flock. But in reality, that might not be the best option for um, the property. Uh, for the property. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm hitting on stuff here that I don't know anything about, but maybe it was something like it takes so long for that flock to get reorganized behind when that that dominant bird position changes you might be missing some opportunities for breeding and, and bigger clutches yeah that's a okay so that's one of the topics that i get asked probably more than any other um and the bottom line we can't look at turkeys contrary now i I know. I'll guarantee you right now. There's somebody that's going to listen to what I'm about to say, and they're going to tell. They're going to holler out in their truck as they're driving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an idiot, and I'm okay with that. But we can't look at turkeys and just in a 30 second episode looking down a gun barrel determine who the dominant bird is. I don't, I'll, I'll entertain the argument with anybody because there's so much that happens before we ever encounter that bird that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. If you have the, if you have the opportunity to watch a group of birds routinely and you're familiar with those, let's say there's three toms that are hanging together and you watch them for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can tell who the, you know, who the dominant bird is, but, but, how many times have you ever been on a hunt where you're 
you're looking down your gun barrel, your heart pounding out of your chest. You can't hear anything. There's, it sounds like tonight, both ears. <laughs> because you're just on pins and needles. And the next thing you see is a fan 30 yards over the ridge. And two birds come over the, the hill at you. One of them strutting. One of them's not. And you have a decision. Do you shoot? Well, who do you shoot? Well, if you're Mike, you shoot with whatever one presents you the best shot. Me and you on the same page there. <laughs> Ask Bobby. <laughs> and, I, and I may be criticized for this, but again, I, I'm okay with that as well. I have pretty thick skin, but um, if, if we time our hunting seasons correctly and we don't harvest too many toms, Shooting a dominant bird is not going to matter because we are harvesting an appropriate rate. We're harvesting an appropriate percentage of the of the, the population, and we're doing it at the right time. If those things are in place, it should not matter who we shoot. You shoot the turkey that walks up there and gives you the best shot, the most effective kill, um, the clear target, whatever you want to call it, you shoot that bird. That's my opinion. I have no science to, to, to say that. I just opinion. What I do have science to say is that we know what an appropriately timed season is, and we understand what harvest rate should be. I mean, we know that. We know we should shoot a certain percentage or less and we know that we should do it at whatever time, depending on where you live in, in the country. And, you know, if those things are in place, this question becomes a moot point. Um, because to your to your question about the, the pecking orders and the, the reshuffling, we know that occurs, but we don't know how long it takes. It, we don't, in other words, if you shoot a dominant bird, we don't really know how long it takes for another breeder to step up. Uh, in some cases, it may be tomorrow because there may be other dominant birds that are there that are in the same environment. In other cases, there, there may not be. So there's goes into that that we don't understand. We're just, we're, we're trying to, but it, that's a hard question to get at. Um, so I, my opinion is let's just make sure that we're, that we're harvesting the bird the way that we know based on biology is the correct way to do it and set bag limits that are appropriate and shoot the bird that walks up there. So is it possible that our seasons, I know Bobby, you and I love that opening weekend in Alabama. I mean, last year, it was cold and raining and we still just get so excited about it because there's something about when the leaves aren't on the trees, the way that gobble just echoes through that yeah. flatland that we hunt, you know, and it's like, oh, I just can't wait. Is it possible that we're starting too early? Yeah, you're trying to get me shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to hear this part of it. <laughs> there's only three or four people listening. Yeah, there's not many people that listen to this, but they're all turkey hunters. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, this is one of the, it's a really tough, tough question, man. The, the, the season frameworks for any animal 
no matter how you said it, somebody's mad. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I will just say, I, I get criticized for this frequently. And, uh, I think a lot of people don't exactly understand how regulations are set, but I don't set regulations. Right. I don't have any regulation setting. I don't do any of that. I'm not involved in any of that, and neither are any other researchers or scientists. It's the state agencies that take information given to them, and their biological staff either chooses to use it or not. And then the administrative system within that agency, whether it's a commissioner or a commission or whatever the case may be, those people then design regulations and they put them in place. Um, sometimes they're by the grounded, and sometimes they are not. So, just to, to make that clear, you know what what I do as a researcher, and what other people like me as biologists do, we don't. We have no. That's not our job. We don't. We don't do that. Sure. In fact, we don't even make. At least speaking personally, I don't make. Rec- I'm not even asked to make recommendations about seasons um i don't say hey you have a two-bird bag that's not that's not my job you just give them the data i wish it was yeah Yeah, we're not blaming you mike we're we're just asking your opinion Um, no 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 this but this is a this is a sensitive subject with people because to your to to the point that was just made that opening day is cherished yeah that's something that's something that people I mean, hell, we all are itching to get out. You know? And when we all look forward to the opening day, mm-hmm. because we get out and do the things that we cherish. And and then you're, you know, tired at the end. But if, like right now, I'm, I'm sitting here after a duck hunt. I'm exhausted. But there's only a few days left. That's right. You got to go. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Keep going. And turkey season is the same way, and so I understand the I understand the the opportunity. The start dates are really something that that people get up in arms about because it's important to them, and they have every right to be um, to at least want to understand. Well, why why are you considering? Why is the state considering changing the, the start date or the end date? You name it doesn't matter any aspect of the regulation. That's the question that every hunter should be asking their agency. Um, they should be asking questions. Well, why are you considering doing this? Why are you proposing to change? The, the question about are we, are we opening seasons too early? We have known, I say we, not me. I, I was a kid, but... In the 1980s and 90s, there was research ongoing that was used to set. It was the standard. It was the it was the standard. It was work done in Missouri that was used by some researchers and biologists to to write a set of guides for how hunting seasons should be framed. And the authors of that document very clearly, who are the lead author, Bill Healy, was was a renowned researcher and a great guy. And they clearly in this document that, you know what, the, the most conservative 
season for this bird would be to open it when they're already into their nesting so that uh. you could comes and they're already done breeding, so who cares if you kill them, right? Um, he predicated those recommendations on a few things. One is, you, know, you, you kind of have to have some so you, you have to produce some turkeys if you're going to do that. And as we talked about, we're not producing as many turkeys as we used to. But but the recommendation was, hey, start it when nesting has has, has started to get ramped up. It, they said at the peak of of nesting, of nest incubation. But mm-hmm. that means where you're at about the median date, the middle of your nesting effort. So about half your hens would be incubating nest. Presumably the other half or most of those would be laying nest. And at that point, the toms are some percentage of them. That's the critical point. Some percentage of those toms, whether they're dominant birds or not, are expendable. You can kill them. Um, he says in this document, he says, um, we are probably going to have to change regulations in the future. In fact, it's, it's on page three of this document. I know it by heart. That we're going to have to take a look at these regulations through time because very likely a lot of things are going to change. That's going to change. Hunter numbers are going to change. He, he, he actually, a bit spooky, tells where we're sitting right now that the point of change and we're going to have to take a a step back and see if what we're doing is still appropriate he also noted that few things could throw a monkey wrench into this this being spring harvest and and seasons if you kill too many times too early the whole system could go haywire because we know from a previous research that shooting a lot of your dominant birds early can create some problems down the road. But he says, you know what? As long as your harvest rates are appropriate, then and you time your seasons right, things should be okay. But let's take a look in the future and see where we are. And I think a lot of agencies now realize that maybe that's we are where he said we would be back mm-hmm. many years ago, which is needing to, to, to maybe take a look at some of the things we can control and some of the things we can't. And if we need to make changes, make them. If we don't, then just plow ahead. But, but, um, but yeah, the, the time, that's a contentious issue. And the bottom line is, the short answer to your question is yes. Are we opening seasons too early? If you're, if you're setting seasons based biology of this bird then in some states you are gotcha you are even a bit early unless your harvest rate is really low early in the season and as you know every almost every state the same data can show you that's not the case no right that's why we love it (laughs) now, now we're most states have tagged a youth season earlier yeah um you know, one of the things I've noticed just reading is that insect populations seem to be on the decline. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just thinking that may have something to do with it, too. Um, but are, are there any gaps in the research that you see? Like, is there anything that you'd like to see researched in the future? 
that that hadn't really been touched on yet? Oh man, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. What, what's an idea for a project that you'd like to to see happen in the future? Well, okay, I'll tell you, but I want to point. I do want to respond to that your comment about the insects. Okay. I think there's a I think there's a lot of validity to that because the past few summers we have been sampling insects, bugs at areas that broods are using. And as all you guys know, bugs matter. Bugs are insects, broods, they have to have them. The adults have to have them. Uh, Those poults are, they're growing rapidly. They're molting. They're doing all these things that require protein and bugs are protein. So they need insects and they need to be able to catch them quickly and they need a lot of them so that they don't spend time burning energy to, to get energy. That's the bottom line. And I have been particularly concerned with what I have seen because what I have noticed is when I go to these sites where these GPS marked pins and their broods are, I mean, we know exactly. They were standing right there. Like they were right there is where they roosted last night. Right over there is where they were at at 8 a.m. Right over there is where they were at 10 a.m. Turkey broods feed all day. They're not like adults. They don't loaf around a lot. Um, There's some popular press saying that they spend a lot of time loafing. Young birds don't do that. They feed pretty much constantly. Like my kids. Even, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Even when they're hanging around and just relaxing, they're eating. You know, they're because they're growing machines. And what I've noticed when I went to these sites, there's two things that have stuck out to me. One is there's often exotic species of, of plants at these sites. For instance, one of the, the prime breeding sites in my across my study sites in Georgia is Japanese stiltgrass. And that's an invasive species growing in bottomland areas, hardwood, riparian zones. And if brood is going to stilt grass, because that's where the most bugs are, that illustrates a potential problem to me. The, the other thing that I've noticed is, and we have some research that's about to be published, the student's finishing his thesis right now on this, you have to go look for bugs at these sites. I mean, you when you walk up there, they don't just flush everywhere. That You have to start scratching around a little bit to find these insects. With the exception of, of spiders, you see quite a few spiders. And that kind of causes pause because I look back at, and to the same person's name, I look back at some of Bill Healy's research, who back in the 1970s imprinted pulps to himself and fed them like he walked them around and observed them feeding. The number of bugs that they caught in a certain period of time seems much higher than what we're seeing. Hmm. You know, we're not watching our broods, but we're going to where they were and we're kind of inferring what happened when they were, how many bugs could they encounter. And, and I see that brood habitat may be something that we've, we've known is important, but we may have overlooked it just a little bit because 
that that could be a critical key that that maybe we're not paying as much attention to. In other words, yes, a lot of lost, but then are these hopes succumbing to predation because of the habitats they're using, and are they not able to grow as quickly? Are they not able to molt quickly? Are they not able to tree roost as quickly? And, and we could be talking a day, like, or 10% slower growth rate. That stuff all matters when it comes down to whether you live or die as an adult. Um, so that's an area of research, Dudley. I, I really would like to see more work in. The problem with that, man, is so few broods hatch. Right. You know, so much that you, it takes you to get enough data to say anything. Like we, we just published, I just published a paper recently. We had a, over a hundred broods. That's unheard of. I mean, that, that's right. the largest uh, of movement data that's been published on Eastern turkeys for broods. And it took us six years, five, five years to get across our study site. So, so that's the research question that I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see some some work on winter survival and winter habitat. I think that's another thing we we may be missing the boat on. Mm. I think these birds may be doing some things in the winter that are that are creating the, some of the, or causing or kind of facilitating some of the issues that we see in the spring. Whether it be females that are a little underweight, whether it be uh, they're not just they're not as conditioned as they were historically. Should that be factored into some of the issues we're having in, in nesting season? In other words, what we're providing them as winter habitat is not is not cutting the mustard, if you will. Are they ending up a little underweight? You know, there's research on waterfowl showing that's important. That mm, you're that you that fat, yeah. yeah. Yes, and if you know, I look around southeast, and, I, and I'll be, you know, specific to the southeast. I look around this region, and I see a fairly massive loss of hardwoods. You know, hardwoods yeah. are being replaced by, by pine, or they're just being removed, and and that matters. Um, maybe some of the large home ranges we see in the winter that we didn't see twenty years ago matter more than we think. Maybe maybe they matter more not at a across the state, but within local pockets. Maybe these birds are are dealing with some issues winter that are causing some of or contributing to some of the problems we're seeing in nesting. That's speculation on my part, but that's an area of research that we really haven't paid much attention to, and I think we probably should. Yeah. Um, gosh, dude, I. I Three hours. <laughs> what he wants to say. So, yeah. so Mike, uh, it's depressing talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> I know we got to start working on cricket conservation. Oh my goodness! <laughs> but I'm so thankful that you're a voice out there that's that's communicating this and and, and ringing the bell. Well, you need the data to make good it. decisions. It's all the old elms, you know, bad stuff in, bad stuff out. You get the good data, you get the good information, you can make better decisions. And I know you, you just mentioned it, you got to, the, the guys that make the laws have to balance public policy with the data, but, you know, 
Numbers are numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, it really is. Well, I don't mean to be depressing. I actually, Bob, say that I had a I had a follower on Instagram that, that commented on one of my posts recently, and he said basically the short of it is. I'm tired of you being so negative. You're like a Debbie Downer, you know? <laughs> and I, honestly, I don't mean to be, and, and I, I don't want to come across as, as being that. I think what I am is I think I'm a realist, and I, I see the data because of what I do for a living, which I'm very blessed to do, and, and I enjoy it. But I see the data that not all – see yeah and that's why i'm trying to use some of the platforms that i'm using is to to get the information out there people can understand you know what this bird goes through just to be a bird just to be a turkey that you know like we've been talking about it's tough being a turkey being a turkey no, we're look. We're thankful that you're doing this. Yeah. I mean, I think we all are from the bottom of our hearts. Oh, it, we, we, you've heard kinda, me talk about it. It just like hurts my soul to think that my children won't have the experiences in the spring woods that, that yeah. I. And well, I, that is self service, self serving. But but all know, of all of us would be willing to reduce absolutely. our harvest if we thought it would absolutely help make the, the opportunity to have to continue to have birds. Yeah. I'd even I'd even start later. Yep. Yeah. Well, whatever, whatever was at, you know, I would trust somebody like Dr. Yeah. Mike Chamberlain to recommend to the agencies, and and we ask those agencies to listen. But uh, you know, the guys, we need to listen to the researchers. They and they, we need to we need to help spread his word and publish the data. You right. know what I mean, because that's how you change public opinion. Sure, you know, you really do. Sure. So, so what, hey, Mike, I want one of the problems. What, what's one of the problems? Go ahead. It's getting that data people to see that right. No, research takes time, and it, some people are openly skeptical of anything that has to do with science, and that's okay. I, I get it. But it takes time to do the work that we do, and it takes a lot of money. And you want to give the agencies the best possible information you can. I don't think you couldn't find a turkey researcher in the world that, that doesn't want to provide the best piece of information but it takes time to do that and we as human beings you know we want something done today or yesterday and um so that's one that's one of the problems and, and that's one of the real benefits of social media is that you if you are willing as a researcher and some are not if you are willing to put information out there that isn't quite published but is relevant to people and will generate discussion and thought and ideas and brainstorming, then you can you can kind of harness some of the work that's not published but is still ongoing. This is my opinion. You can harness that work and, and, and make people aware that it's ongoing and that they they should care about it. Um you know these some agencies do a really good job at taking the data that's provided to them and making sound decisions. But don't, and that's just that's just the way life works. Um, you, you mentioned about the opening. Now, there's a there's a lot of creative ways to go about changing turkey season if the agency determined that a change was warranted. Mm-hmm. And all sorts of models across the United States that are that are out there. 
um, that maybe some people in some states aren't even aware of, you know, of, but, you know, you see all sorts of, of, of possibilities, if you will. Um, bag limits matter. The opening dates matter. Uh, when you kill birds matter. So you see some states like South Carolina, you know, they, they use, and Missouri does the same thing where they season within a seat. So, you know, you can harvest a certain one bird like the first week, or I don't know exactly what it is in both of those states. What they're trying to do is limit that early season harvest without limiting opportunity. And yeah. that's, that's what turkey want. And I'm a turkey hunter. I turkey hunted my whole life. You want to be able to go turkey hunting. You know what I mean? Damn. Yeah, yeah I do. Raise your hand. You know, <laughs> Can I get an amen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. So, so, you know, the agencies, and I'm not I'm not trying to defend the agencies, but, and maybe this will sound like them, but, you know, agencies have a full order when it comes yeah. to pleasing us. I mean, they, they're getting political pressure. They're getting social pressures. They're getting information from science, research, the biological staff, and they're trying to wrap all of that into what makes the most right for people that live in that state. And and also, in some states, what makes sense for people in other states. So, you know, the agencies are, they're in a, you know, a balancing act, and what they're trying to do, I get, you know, I, I've been poked at quite a bit on social media about this. You're an advocate for a limited opportunity. No, no, you got to be kidding me. Right. You have to be kidding. Me. You'll never find another person that's more of an advocate for getting butt outside and go hunt than Mike. I mean, that's that's it. I love to hunt, but on the flip side, I know that we need to make sure that we're setting our regulations as soundly as we can. And there are, again, there are creative ways to do that. There are creative ways to keep people afield and manage the resource. Other, I mean, there we do it for all sorts of species. Right. Uh, and again, it's good for turkeys. And I think uh, those types of discussions are, are valuable to have, you know, amongst ourselves. Like, what? Well, okay, what are some other options? So if we don't, to your point, Lanny, if, if, okay, well, I think you move the season but you know forward in other words open it later okay well as an alternative is there an alternative framework you know the waterfowl people have been really good about this they have a they have a decision made that's based on their popular breeding population and they use that to set their adaptive harvest framework we don't have that for turkeys and although we can't really do it the way the duck people do it we could use a similar approach where we're more proactive than reactive, where um, we use the data that the states have a little more creatively to say, okay, well, if, if there's not support for changing when the season opens, is there support for doing A, B, or C? Those are the types of discussions that I think would be valuable. And again, I don't, I don't have those conversations, but I pay a lot of attention to what others, you know, what states are doing. And I know a lot of on in various states, you know, they're friends of mine, they're colleagues, and I see the things that they're doing with their own legislators and their own administrators to to work these issues out. And I, I think it would it would be great if every turkey hunter 
had a voice and, and have a way of saying, you know what, I have an alternative. Well, let's make that alternative her. Those are good discussions. Yeah, discussion is a key to it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. Well, Mike, we sure have enjoyed having you on today. We covered a lot of ground, and I, I know we all have questions we didn't get to ask. I sure have some more. We've we had you for well over an hour, but we, we'd love to get you back again and talk about another topic. Yeah, let's just talk, let's not talk about turkey season. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, how did your duck hunt go? We had a great hunt. That's good to uh, hear. It, it was, i tell you, and I hope my boss is, not going to listen to this, but um, <laughs> I, I had to get out. I had to get away from campus because the duck season is about to end, and and I love to duck hunt. I've always loved duck hunt, and the thought that I can't do it here in a week it just kills me. So I came to visit some old friends. I'm I'm not as you know I'm not far from you right now. A couple hours, and yesterday was. It, it was exactly what you and I, what Bobby, what you and I texted back and forth. It was tough. Birds were stale. I hunted all day, you know, three birds. It, it was, it was tough. Wow. But I'd be damned. I was going to hang it up. I said, there you, you know go. what? Going to the end. But God blessed us this morning because that north wind brought just enough birds in for us to, to get our limit, which, you know, it's not a measuring stick, but it sure was nice given how tough this season has been. And moreover, they were almost all drakes and they were fully plumed. Oh, man. So, and they decoyed well. Mm. And they, I got some great pictures um, and watched the dog work. And it, it was, it was a blessing. Now, tomorrow will probably suck, but that's okay. <laughs> that's duck hunting. <laughs> we all know about that. That's for sure. Yeah. Today was good. And and after tomorrow, I'll go back to work. And if that's it for the year, then that's it. And if not, and I get to sneak away Saturday, which they probably already knows I will, then I'll give it one more shot. There you go. We're there right you. there with you. Well, that's the one thing that has impressed me about Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He is a big hunter. Oh, he's a hunter. Yeah. Deer, turkeys, which, which ducks. Which in my mind, makes him more concerned about what he's studying mm-hmm. than if he wasn't. So yeah. I love it. I so love he was here at Mississippi State for a long time. Yeah. And then now he's at Georgia. Yeah. And uh, but but I think Starkville's played a big role in his life. Well, that's good to Starkville, know. Starkville, Mississippi. He's a bulldog across the board. <laughs> it's uh, it's playing a part of my life. As you know, I have I have a son who's in college at Mississippi State and have long ties to Stark. Stark Vegas and oh, um, Vegas. yeah, I love uh, love coming here. I love visiting this state. Have close friends that are still here. Have a kid here, so yeah, my ties are my ties are still here, and uh, probably always will be. That's good to know. Well, come tailgate with us one weekend, Mike. Absolutely, or come I hunt with us and <laughs> hunt. Yeah, I hope that we will by next fall we will be tailgating oh, yeah. shoulder to shoulder. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, oh, yeah, that yeah, would yeah, be yeah, good. So that. yeah, we need to we need to work on getting Mike on a hunt. Yeah, because I got a lot more questions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't have enough time here. I didn't even get to talk about moss heads and the original turkeys and you know the fifth species of all yeah, my yeah. all our crazy Wait, theories. What's all the weird things you found in a crop? Yeah, I mean, I, I is got, it a crop got, or a crawl? What's the what is it? What's the weirdest abnormality you've come across? I mean, I got a million questions. We've enjoyed having you on. We really appreciate it. 
I'm glad to join you always. Be glad be glad whenever. Just and, let me know. And right. we're, we're going to root that this podcast gets downloaded more than Bronson's. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's right. We're going to make sure well, it I'm does. Going, <laughs> I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to send out some messages to, to a couple hundred or a couple thousand people and just say, hey, just go down. Yes, I'll get off. I get all my kids' friends to download it. There you go. <laughs> there you go. We'll rub it in on. We love winning. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all right, sir. Well, we sure appreciate it. And we'll stay in touch. Thanks for taking the time with us. Yeah, man. Thank y'all. Yes, sir. We'll see ya. I really enjoy talking to him. Man, I do too. He's, he's just the, a plethora of information. He's the real deal, and yeah. uh, and he's a hunter. Yeah, we we need uh, we need to have him back many more times because I think we've got a lot of questions. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we need to help him. You know. Help where where it's appropriate for us publish that data, you know, and 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 start helping um, shape public opinion. You know, yeah. we really do. So depressing probably isn't the right word, but it but it is eye opening, and it's something that everybody needs to pay attention to. And this is real timely. I think you're having all these conversations with me right before turkey season because you know I'm gonna have a weak head start on you. Well, last year, <clears throat> it, I think the whole month of March, you didn't walk through the doors. No. Of the office, That's I was right. the only one here. You were the only one here, basically. <laughs> I had your so, in your bed. I get it. You know, so COVID, you you got to quarantine during turkey season. Yeah, that I wasn't wait. fair at all. I'm gonna have to find somebody that's got it when turkey season rolls back around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm Maybe gonna, Jess will still be on quarantine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably will. And, you know, I don't want to make light of it, but Lord have mercy, two weeks during turkey season for you is not. I fair. loved it. Yeah. It's not fair. So, so uh, look, we've got a. I think Mac, you've got to ask Dudley question. We, if you could uh, read that, we'll get Dudley to keep this show moving. You got it. Hey Dudley, this is from Todd in Cordell, Georgia, which is about South Central Georgia. Gotcha. Hey, do you do y'all know what uh, Cordell what uh, is famous for? Cordell, Georgia. Fishing, Cordell, Georgia. Is it a fishing lure? I know. Nope. No. Okay. What's the watermelon capital of the world? Okay. Is that where the watermelon crawl happens? Well, I, I thought you guys would know that. So go ahead. Well, you're question. just full of it today. Yeah. All right. So here's Todd's question. I received my white oak and nut all trees yesterday. The low will be 29 degrees Sunday morning. Should I wait until Sunday afternoon or even Monday to plant? Will my trees last that long in the box? Thanks, Dudley. Okay. What was his name again? Todd. Todd. All right, Todd. Good question. I get that one a lot, and it's a very important one. Um, Think about it this way. Uh, We grow these trees as naturally as we possibly can. So we start them in a greenhouse, but, you know, when they're about a month old, we start moving them outside for the rest of the growing season. And so the trees you got in the mail the other day, have already seen temperatures much lower than that. So don't worry a bit about it. Get them in the ground. Uh, I think they've seen, I think we got down to like 17 or 18 one night already. And they're grown with their roots above the ground. So uh, that's even colder than than your conditions. So get those bad boys in the ground. Preconditioned. If you were like in northern Illinois, I'd I'd tell you otherwise. You know, maybe wait till the spring. But yeah, get them in the ground. Let them be rooting in. In the, in the common rule is if the ground's frozen, don't plant them. I mean, you don't Yeah, I mean, you, you can't dig. There's also a phenomenon called Phenomena. frost heaving. And so when you get north of where we are, I, I don't know, maybe somewhere in Kentucky, 
you know, theoretically you can plant all winter long. Here. But, or or up there uh, on a on a mild winter, but if it gets down to twenty one night and it had been, you know, fifty the day before, that ground is gonna freeze and it's actually it can actually push your tree out of the ground. Oh, uh, kind of the opposite of frost seeding. Yeah, yeah. well, that's part of the whole idea. process. Yeah. Right. And so that's one thing you have to be aware of the further north you go. Um, I've heard of people taking a pin flag and, and shoving it through the roots and into mm-hmm. the ground. Oh, to make it stay um, in there? To help keep it in there. But uh, we're getting a little off subject. Yeah. Hey, so. we tend to do that. Well, good. Well, thank you, Dudley. That was a— Thank you, Mr. Noah. <laughs> so, what was that? Heaving, frost heaving, frost heaving. Very familiar with frost seeding. So, I've got heaving. an idea, Mac. If uh, if you're going to read these questions instead of having the actual person, to, could you, whatever state they're calling from, could you try to read the question and and sound like a person from that state? I, I could definitely give it a try. I mean, I, I think, think you got gotta, Georgia there. I yeah. Mean, yeah. yeah, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, pretty, pretty close. close. Yeah. Pretty close. So, might be a little so, different. so maybe we can go for some states uh, and yeah, we, need we to, can challenge Mac here. I like fine. it. I maybe somebody from New York or something. So Todd gets a, a, a gift pack. And then anybody, if you've got a question for Dudley, and I'll go ahead and say it, y'all are missing the boat because he can answer a lot of different topics other than trees. Even if I don't know the answer myself, I know Fashion, a lot. I know a lot of people. He'll find raising out. Raising kids, religion. There's just so much that he knows about. So, all right, well, good. Well, we got that done. Is there, uh, Lanny, is there anything else we need to do on your end? Uh, no, I have some more questions for Dr. Chamberlain, but we'll just have to have him back <laughs> home. Sure. Well, you know, when we say what did we learn today, we learned a lot. Yeah, yeah, I learned a lot. I, I love turkeys, and I want them to be around a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it almost, I mean, uh, wasn't, it didn't, gosh, I'm going to mess the names up like I do on everything. It was almost, wasn't it considered to be the national bird? Or? Well, yeah, I think Benjamin Franklin wanted to have it be the national bird. Mm, there you go. Now, we don't need to do that because then we really wouldn't be able to hunt them, would we? <laughs> I, don't I mean, know. you know, bald eagle doesn't taste as good as turkey. I don't know if y'all figured that out yet. Yeah. <laughs> what does it taste like? I don't really know. <laughs> Chicken. Chicken. Oh, well, we've been here a long time. We yeah. probably. Hey, we got some. We got some Neil guy over here to eat. I smell oh, yeah. it. Come it in. Smells yeah. good. Vandy was sneaking in. Chef the Vandy slipping on in here and putting some vittles down. Yeah, can't beat that. All right, guys. Well, I've enjoyed it, and we certainly enjoyed having uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain from Georgia. We're having again. Uh, so, uh, Dudley, say goodbye, Dudley. Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Cleve. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast, and be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine, and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.